G'day folks, welcome to another edition of Manacast, where we talk about the intersections of faith, economy, ecology, and stuff. Manacast is the podcast of Managum, a ministry in good news economics. My name is Jonathan Cornford, and I'm talking to you from Jarjawaran country in Bendigo, Victoria, which is a centre of global culture and ideas, if there ever was one. So today we have the first in a two-part talk I gave to the Tier New South Wales conference in 2016, which seems like a long time ago now, but it's interesting that what I had to say then about the times we're living in fits pretty well for 2021, except perhaps it's even more true now. I was asked to talk by Tier on the theme of living faithfully in the 21st century. So the first talk is called Facing the Bad News, and the second talk, which will be the next episode of Manicast, is called Inhabiting the Good News. So without further ado, let me hand over to myself and let's get straight into it. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a, it's a great pleasure to come here, and thanks to Steve and Beck for in, inviting me. Uh, looks like it's going to be a good day from the program, so I hope you put as much into it to get as much out of it as you can. So over the course of this day, the, the theme that we're exploring is what it means to live faithfully in the 21st century. That means we need to wrestle with what faithful living means, what faith in Christ means. It means we need to wrestle with the meaning of our times. I'm going to have to ask what the meaning of words are like repentance and discipleship or witness, what they mean and look like today. And that means we need to understand what they're speaking into and what they're responding to. It's perhaps a truism to say that we're living in dangerous, in momentous and uncertain times. It seems pretty clear that we're in a period of significant historical transition, but it's not at all clear what the world is transitioning to. And like all such times, transition suggests danger and possibility. But my sense is probably most people are feeling the danger of the times a little bit more than the possibility. For those who think hard about the state of the world and those who think hard about faith in Christ, Christ will be people who feel the weight of the times, I think. The challenges presented by the 21st century do seem disturbing and formidable. Certainly that's the way I feel about, feel about it when I think about it. Now, I don't think it has ever been easy to be a follower of Jesus. But perhaps we're waking from a long period when it may have seemed that way. When it may have seemed that following Jesus didn't ask that much of us, didn't demand too much. Perhaps the, wealth, the Christian church in the wealthy Western world has to some extent had its head in the clouds for a time. And in many ways, I think these days were being brought back to earth, perhaps with something of a thud. The landscape of faith in a fractured postmodern world has changed fundamentally. And many of the, the assumptions and habits that we've had in the past are no longer going to serve us in the 21st century. Perhaps we'll be finding that they actually haven't been serving us that well for a long time. 
So over the course of my two talks today, I'm going to be suggesting that the cent one of the central tasks for living faithfully in the 21st century will be the task of allowing the gospel to speak into and to shape our material lives. Until the good news of Jesus begins to shape our attitudes to money and to things and to the natural world, to our use of time and to the things we work for in the world, then we will not have discovered the whole good news. Where once we may have been looking for heaven in the clouds, we will find that in coming back to earth, this is the place God has been working to bring heaven all along. And at the centre of these talks is the conviction that even in the strange and troubled times of the 21st century, the way of Jesus continues to offer light to the world and the life that really is life. But if this is to be anything more than just a fatuous statement, we need to face up to some pretty hard and confronting realities. We cannot fully appreciate how the good news is good until we face up to some bad news. So in this talk, I'm going to spend a little bit of time thinking about the seriousness of the predicament that we've gotten ourselves into in the 21st century and the seriousness of the predicament of Christianity in the West in the 21st century. In order to more clearly diagnose our condition, we're going to spend a little bit of time also recalling how the New Testament has envisioned the calling of the people of God. And we'll be asking how it was that we came to be where we are, where we find ourselves now. I'm going to be suggesting that, in effect, the present crises of the world and the crisis of Christianity in the West are perhaps one and the same. They're both the crisis of the way that we live. So in the second talk, I'm going to outline some of the components that I think will be essential to reclaiming the Christian calling and inhabiting the Christian calling. What does it practically mean to apply the gospel to our material lives in this complex, all-encompassing global consumer economy? And how does a Christian approach to material life relate to other aspects of Christian mission and witness? What does it have to do with things like evangelism or political witness? In all of this, I'm going to be trying to paint a picture that the movement that is required of us, the process of coming back to earth, is continually one of holism and integration, a movement of reading our spiritual lives and our material lives, all of life, through the single, consistent and coherent lens of faith in Christ. So let's turn to thinking about the crises of our age. It's no secret that in the 21st century we are faced with some unprecedented challenges. Foremost amongst these is the planetary ecological crisis of truly disturbing proportions. So whether we're thinking of uh, forest cover, soil degradation or the loss of all sorts of terrestrial, marine or freshwater habitats whether we're thinking about the big daddies of species extinction and climate change, the situation is generally pretty alarming. The human impact on the planet in the last 100 years, and particularly in the last 70 years, has been so dramatic 
that Earth system scientists are proposing that we've now entered a new era of planetary history, what they are naming the age of the Anthropocene. Last year's Living Planet report put it this way. Such is the magnitude of our impact on the planet that the Anthropocene might be characterised by the world's sixth mass extinction event. This is the first time a new geological epoch may be marked by what a single species, Homo sapiens, has consciously done to the planet, as opposed to what the planet has imposed on its resident species. And of course, this has all been driven by humanity's economic exploitation of the Earth. And we think, when we think about our exploitation of the Earth, uh, still, uh, one of the main culprits that's talked about is overpopulation. And certainly overpopulation is a real issue in some parts of the world, in parts of Africa and parts of South Asia especially. However, thinking globally, exploitation, our use of the planet, is a product of population times rates of consumption. And it's here that we have our real problem. Since 1988, 80% of world income growth has accrued to the wealthiest 10% of the planet. That's us, the people in this room. And we have consumed accordingly. Since 1988, the bottom half of the planet, 3.6 billion people, has received only 1% of world income growth. And they have consumed accordingly. It's the consumption rates of the top 20%, us, that is the real problem in our use of the, of the planet. So you can see that the ecological crisis is fundamentally linked to economic inequality as well. Since, 2012, since 2010, sorry, the net wealth of the bottom half of the, of the planet has declined by around 40%. In 2015, the world's richest 62 individuals owned as much wealth as the bottom half of the planet. That is, 62 people owned as much wealth as 3.6 billion people. This staggering uh, inequality is widening rapidly too. And what's more, it's happening in a world that's an increasingly a connected world in which the bottom half can see how the top 10% live. And of course such radical inequality must be founded upon systemic economic injustice. And there are many mechanisms by which this happens, some of the very complex and subtle mechanisms of the, of the global market. And yet some are still as crude and as bald-faced as they have ever been, such as the epidemic of land grabbing that gripped the developing, developed worlds for the last 15 years. But through a whole host of mechanisms, the wealth that's been extracted from the earth is being systematically funnelled towards the top. So life for much of the world remains hard and uncertain, while for us, life in the wealthy West is happy and rosy. Or maybe not. For just as we've become wealthier than humans have ever been before in history, the developed world has been gripped by that strange set of maladies, that peculiar group of illnesses that have been dubbed affluenza. 
So whether we're talking about the physiological maladies related to diet, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, things like that, whether we're talking about rates of depression and anxiety and mental ill health, behavioural disorders amongst children, whether we're talking about rates of relational breakdown and family breakdown, or simply about just the prevalence of the sense of loneliness and isolation in our communities, it's pretty clear that as a society and a culture, we are not well. And increasingly there's a strong consensus that as much as a whole range of diverse drivers between, behind these phenomena, a common factor to all of them is our way of life. Again and again, in so many different ways, we're being brought to the conclusion that our mode of living is not only killing the planet, not able to be sustained by it, it's not only radically unjust, but it's also no good for us either. Now, this is a pretty damning state of affairs, and I'm sorry if you haven't heard that this put this way before, and perhaps you're gasping for breath, but my hunch is I probably haven't said anything that most of you haven't heard before at one, in one way or another. Unfortunately, I'm not finished yet. We have a little bit more bad news to work through. When we think about these crises of our time, the ecological crisis or the crises of growing economic inequality or our particular Western sicknesses of affluenza, how do Christians stack up in this picture? If we were to look at the material lives of Australian Christians from the perspective of an external observer, someone who doesn't know us well, who doesn't understand our subtle differences, if they were to try and sort out who are Australian Christians in amongst the broader mess of Australian culture, what would they make of us? Save a Martian anthropologist to, to come and do a study on this obscure little subgroup named, known as Australian Christians. My hunch is they might come to a conclusion something like this, that being a Christian in Australia was something akin to belonging to a sports club. It seemed to have some sort of influence on timetabling, involved a financial commitment of some sort, seemed to have an influence on the language that people used, on their use of narcotic substances, and who people slept with, all of which may be true of a sports club. So... To our Martian anthropologist, it might seem that Christian faith was really just another one of those many optional layers that an Australian could add, add onto the firm foundation of a largely non-negotiable material culture. Now, I don't actually think that would be a fair diagnosis. Our Martian anthropologists can't see beneath the surface. Between, beneath the surface. And I think there are indeed some real differences in how Christians conduct their economic lives. However, when we think about the big ticket items that make up our ecological footprint in the world and our economic footprint, it would be hard to argue that there are many substantive differences between the economic lives of Australian Christians and mainstream consumer culture. When we think about the crises of our age, we might say that Christians are equally implicated and equally afflicted. Indeed, there's one way in which Christians are particularly afflicted because perhaps it's one of the conditions of our time that it seems harder to believe than ever before. We all know that church attendance fell off a cliff in the 1960s when Christianity stopped being 
the cultural default position for Western society. But since that time, new membership coming into the church through conversion and evangelism has been very small, statistically almost non-existent. Of course it happens, but nowhere near as much as we would like to think. Perhaps more disturbing, the rates of transmission of faith between parent and child are quite low. So for a family with two committed Christian parents, there's only around a 50% chance that their children will continue in the faith that their parents had. And for those who remain in the church and who are holding on to belief, the challenges of believing still seem to be growing. We would all know the ways in which for, for all of us, for young and old, lay and ordained, that there's a struggle to relate faith to the increasingly complex existential, ethical and lifestyle challenges being continually presented to us by an increasingly aggressive secular and pluralist consumer culture. I do a lot of Bible study with young adults and I've found that for many who even really have a strong sense of faith, they're finding it hard to articulate what is good about the good news in this world. They're finding that the versions of, of articulating faith that they have seem just a bit thin and unconvincing in the face of these sorts of substantial global crises we're facing, or that they actually offer them few defences against the temptations and distractions of a consumer culture. So these are some of the crises of our time. They're ecological, economic, social, cultural, psychological and spiritual. Now our gut instinct tells us that faith in Christ should make the difference to this picture. So why do we get the sense that it's not making as much difference as it should? Is Christianity in fact inadequate to making sense of our present reality? Is it old hat that doesn't apply anymore? Is it unable to provide clear and helpful guidance? I don't think so. I don't think we need a new story or an updated story or an improved story. We just need to know the story we have a bit better and we need to read it a bit more carefully. So I want to spend a little bit of time just quickly now thinking about how the vocation of the people of God is envisaged in the New Testament, what the New Testament calling says for us. Now, obviously, I can't give a full treatment to this subject in the time here today, but I want to draw out some aspects of the Christian calling that have perhaps been underappreciated and that we need to pay a bit more attention to. And, of course, if we're thinking about the Christian calling, that means starting with Jesus. So when Matthew, Mark and Luke want to summarise the message of Jesus in one pithy, simple statement, statement they tell us, that Jesus went about proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. For them, this represented a summary, actually, of all that he said and did. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And I can't overstate the importance that Jesus' whole ministry and message begins with the call to repentance, a call to turn. Now, we've often given a, quite a negative flavour to the word repentance, but the Greek word metanoia, 
from which we get repentance, means literally to change your mind or to put a new mind inside your head, a new perception even, a new way of seeing reality. Same data coming in, different conclusions being reached. We might say that seeing clearly is something that defines Christian faith and Christian witness. So later today we're going to think about what repentance might mean substantively for us in this day. But for now, let us just note that it's the starting point of that thing called the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? Well, that is surely a subject too broad and too deep to cover here. But for now, let's simply recognise that when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God, he's drawing our attention to an alternative possibility, an alternative way of being in the world that is founded upon allegiance to God before and above all else. And other than the kingdom of God itself, the subject that Jesus talked about more than any other was the subject of money and possessions. It seems pretty clear that this subject was critical for Jesus in helping us to be able to see clearly this alternative possibility that God was calling us. And anyone who's even just glanced briefly at Jesus' teachings on money would know that they are very challenging indeed. All the hardest things about money in the Bible has come from the mouth of Jesus. However we interpret them, it seems pretty clear that Jesus was pretty keen to shake up our attitudes to money and stuff. Another thing that all four Gospels attest was central to the ministry of Jesus was that he formed a new community. And the fact that the core number of his disciples was 12 tells us that Jesus saw this community as foundationally linked to the vocation of Israel. And when we think about that, that brings to mind the promise that was given to Abraham, that through him would come a blessing to all the families of the world. Or we're called to think about the prophetic vision of Isaiah, that the people of God would be a light to the nations. So how then do we describe this new community that Jesus was forming? Perhaps the most striking point to understand is how deeply the mission of this community was identified with the work of Jesus himself. So in John's Gospel in chapter 20, when the resurrected Jesus appears to the disciples behind closed doors, Jesus sums up the task of his followers in one simple and mind-blowing statement. He breathes the Holy Spirit upon them and he says, As the Father sent me, so I send you. Now it's hard to get your head around the implications of this statement. Here is God's incarnated word, the one who has proclaimed the kingdom, who has been the kingdom, performing healing, casting out spirits, speaking truth to power, and who has just suffered, died, and risen to life. And here he is telling his followers, as the Father sent me, so I send you. It bears some thinking about. 
And the Apostle Paul says something similarly mind-blowing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, in Christ, God was reconciling the whole world back to himself. And the the word world there is cosmos, the whole created order. All the broken things in the cosmos, Jesus was bringing back together into healing in himself. Then Paul goes on to say, And this is the work that has been entrusted to you. You are now ambassadors of this reconciliation. So John's resurrection story and Paul's letters all make clear that this new community was a gathering, and that's what the word church simply means, the gathering. It is the gathering of those who have been filled with the spirit of Jesus. Of course, the birth of the church is usually dated from the coming of the Holy Spirit. That The story that's recounted to us is in, in Acts chapter 2. And at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, we hear that the Holy Spirit was divided amongst the believers like tongues of fire. And the word in Greek there is a particular word. It only occurs twice in the book of Acts. And it's better perhaps translated, the Holy Spirit was distributed amongst the believers like tongues of fire. And that word, the second time it appears, is at the end of the very same chapter when it tells us that the believers distributed their their goods one amongst the other. And so, in effect, fulfilling the command of Deuteronomy 15, that there be no poor amongst them. So the story that recounts the birth of the church begins with a distribution of spirit and ends with a distribution of material goods. This is a prime example of a truth that is constant throughout the Bible. That spiritual life must flow into material life. That spiritual life flows naturally, seamlessly and inexorably into material life, one way or another. And indeed, here we have a picture in Acts chapter 2, an example, if you like, of word becoming flesh again. When Paul wants to think most profoundly about this new community, the church, he refers to it as the body of Christ. This is incarnation language. Just as Jesus is God's supreme word, the supreme thing that God wants to say to humanity, takes a shape in the form of a human life, so following the ascension of Jesus... The spirit of Christ continues to be enfleshed in the world in the life of the community that is filled with his spirit. You, Paul writes, you plural, are the body of Christ and individually members of it. In other words, the calling of the church, just like the calling of Israel, is to be a community that communicates the character of God to the world not merely by words, but by its whole mode of being. And this requires that it be a distinctive community, a community of lively difference and non-conformity. And the Bible has a special word for this. It's called holiness. Now, holiness is a word that we have, I think, some difficulties with. One, it's just so constant through our Bibles that perhaps we just don't notice it anymore and our eyes glaze over. But for some people, it's also taken on a slightly negative tinge. For some people, the word holiness is linked to words such as 
holier than thou, or perhaps if they think about a holy person, they think of someone who's a bit up in the clouds, who's not really down on this earth. But the biblical word for holiness means something much more earthy than that. In fact, we get a better understanding of the meaning of holiness if we put, simply put a W in front. It means wholeness. And in fact, the, the family of words from which our word holiness comes from in English, comes, we get the same word, we get words such as wholeness, health, and healing. They all belong to the th- same family of words. Holiness is, in effect, a, a concept of integration, where mind, body, and spirit have become one. And the fact that difference or in the more religious language, that the fact that being set apart is a fundamental requirement of holiness is not so that we can be religiously snooty. It's not to be religiously elitist or to be a private fan club for Yahweh. The reason difference is so important a concept to holiness is because in a fallen world, difference is the condition of health. In a broken world, difference is the condition of health. So when we get the holiness code in Leviticus 19, from which Jesus takes one of the two great commandments, uh, the prerequisite to that code is given in Leviticus 18, when the Israelites are told, you shall not be like Egypt from whence you came, and you shall not be like Canaan to where you are going. In effect, God is saying, if you're going to be my people, if you're going to communicate me to the world, then you're going to need to live differently to how everyone else lives. This is all summed up by the Apostle Paul in that one short pithy passage in Romans 12, which we've always already heard an excerpt from. Uh, And this is a passage that begins with an appeal and a therefore, and my old pastor used to say, whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you need to know what it's there for. So the previous 11 chapters of Romans, Paul has been making his great statement about faith in Christ. And if I can be so bold as to try and summarize it in one sentence, it's perhaps captured by Paul's use of the quote from Habakkuk in chapter 1, when he says, the one who is righteous will live by faith. And in chapters 9 to 11, Paul is with great anguish recounting how some of his brethren have been cut off from the vine of the people of God because of their unfaith. And Paul gives a warning to the new Christians. He says, this too could happen to you. Don't be uh, cosy in your belief that it all hinges on faith. And that brings us to the pointy end of his argument in Romans chapter 12. What does faith mean? Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So what does faith in Christ look like? Well, for Paul, it requires presenting our bodies, and by that he means our everyday material existence in the world, presenting this as a gift to God. And this is actually what constitutes our spiritual worship. 
So what we do in our bodies, in our material lives, is spiritual worship. Worship is something, it's great to sing songs, but we can't really worship just by singing. Worship is something that can only be done with a life. And of course the descriptor of this worshipful material life is that word holiness again. So Paul's next thought should not at all be surprising to us. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you might be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good. So Paul is essentially saying the same thing as Jesus. Repent, put a new mind in your head, change direction. And for Paul, it's interesting to note that a reordered material life is and a transformation of mind is a prerequisite to starting to be able to see clearly for even understanding what is truly good in this world, what God wants of us. And just as Jesus placed an emphasis on money and possessions, Paul too continually stresses in his letters the need for the body of Christ to undergo a reordering of desire, a new perception of what a healthy and whole material life looks like. And some parts of us have presumed that Paul has uh, primarily been focused here on sexual ethics. But a proper reading of Paul's letters will show that he's actually concerned with the whole gamut of material and bodily life. And more than that, the churches founded by Paul were not just spiritual communities, they were economic communities. We get small glimpses of this here and there in his letters, in his uh, letters about his collection for the poor in Jerusalem, or in 2 Thessalonians and 1 Timothy, where Paul has to do, deal with some of the unintended issues that come up from having forms of economic sharing in their communities where some members don't need to work anymore. We don't know a great deal about what this shared economic life looked like in Paul's communities, but we know that it must have been significant. And when Paul's writing to the Corinthian church about his collection for the poor in Jerusalem, he invokes a story of the manna in the wilderness as the story that to instruct them. And that's a story about economics. And the lesson that Paul derives from it is that none shall have too much. None shall have too little, and none shall have too much. Paul, like Jesus, is linking the vocation of the church to the vocation of Israel and to the alternative economy that it was being called to practice. So in summarising how the New Testament writers uh, understood the calling of the church, we need to remember a number of things. One, it continues in the calling of Israel to communicate the character of God to the world, to be a blessing to the families of the earth and a light to the nations. Secondly, it's a community that is centred and modelled on the life and teaching of Jesus himself, that this community is itself the ongoing process of word becoming flesh, of God speaking to humanity through lives. Thirdly, this was a community found upon a whole new perception of reality, a new way of seeing the world. Fourthly, it was a community that needed, was a community of non-conformity and resistance to the dominant culture. It was, in effect, a counter-cultural community. Fifth, 
It's a community whose material life was to be ordered on a lively and distinctive vision of health and wholeness, a vision of goodness. And that meant, sixth, that it was, in effect, an alternative economic community. In other words, we could say that the church was called to be a community of good news in amongst the bad news of the world. And it is a witness to the good news not just by speaking it, but by living it and experiencing it. Needless to say, this is perhaps not most people's experience of Christian life in, and Christian community today. So what has happened? How did we get here? I just want to very briefly uh, do a quick trot through 2,000 years of history to bring us up to the, to the present. Easy. We can do it. Um, I think, just as an aside, it's helpful to have... Uh, I'm a great believer in history and having some understanding of history because it's helpful to know how, why things are the way they are, to have some sort of narrative that tells us how why things are, and also that gives us some insight that things don't necessarily need to be the, the way they are, and they haven't always been that way. Uh, now, in dealing with Christian history uh, so briefly, I'm necessarily going to have to make some simplifications, so I just want to place a caveat there. that Actually, the story is a lot more complex than that, and there are many more elements and nuances that we could, could build in if we had time. But I just want to draw attention to four moments in Christian history that, to some extent, explain our current predicament at the beginning of the 21st century. And the first of these moments happened very early in the Christian story, perhaps around the, the, the second century, and it began with the influence of Hellenism on the new church. And in particular, uh, the idea of what we call, that, that crept in, of a dualism between spirit and the body. The idea that the realm of the, the, the Greek idea that the realm of the spirit was the realm of the pure and the perfect and the realm of matter was the realm of corruption. And that the two, according to some versions of Platonism, never never actually met. Now, this represented a major shift from the Hebrew worldview which saw the created world as infused by the breath of God. Uh, and it's had a major influence on how we read the Bible today with this mind-body, uh, spirit-body, spirit-matter split. So we've conceived of the life of the spirit as somehow something separate and unattached to the life of the body, which in turn has allowed us to perform all sorts of exegetical gymnastics with Jesus' teachings on money. So when Jesus presents us with what seems like a fundamental truth about the human condition, that where your treasure is, there your heart is, we've told ourselves that it doesn't really matter how much wealth we have as long as we don't treasure it. And somehow we have this assumption that we can somehow maintain a spiritual disposition that is completely disinterested in our material state. And through this we've given licence for a consumer culture to run riot in our lives without discipline or correction. The second moment I want to bring attention to was a moment when the Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity and began the process which led for the Roman Empire to become a Christian empire. Now, uh, this was the birth of that thing that we call Christendom, that 
millennia-long experiment in a Christian civilization. And it was the beginning of what we, uh, a long heritage of uh, beginning to a conflation of Christianity with the culture of, and civilization of the West. But it was also a momentous step uh, when the church made its peace with power and particularly the means of violence and coercion. And the church also made its peace with wealth and luxury. And in doing so, the church began that long and bad habit of starting to try to find ways of getting around the teachings of Jesus. Now, there's a lot more to that story than that, and I don't want to be seen as someone who sees that Christendom was all bad. In fact, I think an enormous amount of goodness has come to the world through the legacy of Christendom. But I think those two things will never, nevertheless remain true, things that we continue to live with. The third moment happened with the Protestant Re Reformation, of which we're just on the cusp of the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to that church door in Wittenberg. And again, what an amazing and complex movement, and as a Protestant, I obviously have a lot invested in its meaning. However, there were some unintended consequences we're increasingly becoming aware of now from the Protestant Reformation. And one of those was that the intense uh, focus on salvation of the soul after death that came in after a few generations of uh, Protestantism and over a couple of hundred years gradually led to the development of what became an intense religious individualism. That is, the focus of religious life became me and God, and the rest of the world became blotted out. Almost, it was almost as if people were blinded by too much light, the light of the individual related to God, which is obviously fundamental to the faith, and yet no longer able to see what was around them. And that happened at the same time at which Europe was going through a series of economic upheavals that we now refer to with hindsight as the birth of capitalism. It was that period when the goal of endless accumulation became enthroned as the rational goal for individuals, societies and governments. And whereas once the medieval Christian faith would have had no trouble denouncing this as a heresy, the new Protestant faith now lacked some of the spiritual resources to properly name and challenge the social and economic and spiritual transformation that was being wrought uh, by capitalism. The fourth moment, final moment I want to refer to was the intellectual revolution of the 18th century that we call the Enlightenment. And this was a revolution that established humanity and the cosmos as something completely independent from God. We don't need a God to explain things anymore. And the scientific monopoly on explaining the material universe led to an intensification within Christianity to the tendency towards the dualism that we talked before, and an intensification of the focus on, the, on a separation between the world of spirit and the, the material world. And if science explained the material universe and governments now took care of uh, economics and politics, then the only legitimate place for the church left to steward was the private recesses of our souls. And then so, in a lot of ways, the Enlightenment served to deepen the religious individualism that had been set in motion by the Reformation. And yet, despite these significant capitulations of territory, 
Most people continue to presume that European civilization was nevertheless the shape of, shape of civilization that had been mandated by Christianity. And that at this stage, this is Euro capitalist European civilization and increasingly imperialist European civilization. And this confusion of Christianity with the culture of the West has had clearly tragic consequences for the indigenous peoples of the world, not least in this country. But it also meant that Christians lost the capacity to see clearly into the fallenness of their own culture, into the brokenness that they lay at the heart of their own culture. We lost that cultural critique that is fundamental to Jesus' first call, the call to repent. So fast forward to the 21st century and we've woken up to find ourselves enmeshed in a soulless and nihilistic consumer culture that acts as a solvent for relationships and community, that's founded on an economic system that is wreaking havoc with the planet and fixing an ever-widening gulf between the privileged few and the many. And the great tragedy is that for so many Western Christians, there is very little sense that their faith has anything to say about all of this. It's no wonder that Christianity is in crisis in the West. To put it bluntly, the crisis of Christianity and the crisis of the world are one and the same, because to a large extent, that's what we've become. So, what are we to do? Well, Luther and Calvin had it right. We need to go back to the source. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. As always, our first task is simply to see clearly. To see clearly the times in which we live and to see how faithfulness in Jesus might be lived in the world as we find it now. And if our way of life is at the heart of the brokenness we see in the world and at the heart of the brokenness we find within ourselves, if our way of life is coming in between us and faith in Christ, then it is our way of life that we must confront. confront. And it's that that I'm going to be focusing on in the talk after lunch. So we're going to be asking questions like, what do repentance and discipleship require of us now? What are the prerequisites for beginning to start to see clearly again? What does it mean to be joined together in the body of Christ? And what are the necessary prerequisites for evangelism and political witness in our time? Through all of this, I'm going to be suggesting that central to all of these tasks is the task of beginning to reorder and reconceive our material lives. Now, in case you're getting nervous at this point, I'll say now that I'm not going to suggest that we all need to undertake some massive overhaul and transformation of how we live. I think that's neither possible nor desirable for most of us. We need to be realistic about what we can achieve, but yet I will be suggesting that whatever our starting point, and our starting points, it's important to recognise, are all different. We are starting from different places that there are steps each one of us can begin to take to begin moving in another direction. And that, over time, substantive change in our material lives 
is perhaps more possible than our cultural programming would have us believe, actually. It's not as hard as we may initially presume if we take small steps and take them one at a time. But that's going to be our subject for uh, discussion after lunch, and you're going to talk about a lot more in between. Now, Paul, do we have time for some... Plenty of time for some questions. So, um, that, that's nice to hear. I don't often hear that. Um, so I have some time, if you like, for some questions. And uh, just, I guess, be aware we're going to work through some of the implications of what, what I've said this afternoon. So maybe we won't have questions about the implications. Uh, let's stick to questions of, of clarifications around the stuff I've, I've talked about. And there's also going to be a Q&A panel tonight to talk about some of the actually much bigger implications. So there's, the guys have built in a lot of pro time in the program to to thinking through the complexity. And I just want to acknowledge, seeing as we've got plenty of time, there is a lot of complexity that under, sits underneath these sorts of concepts and a lot of nuance and a lot of grey areas too. Uh, so I want to acknowledge that right up the front, that, uh, that although we can be clear about what uh, the Gospel asks of us, it's not necessarily always clear what that e exactly means. Let's throw up some, some questions. Uh, yeah, so, okay, the, Re the Reformation was a huge movement and it had multiple uh, elements, so there's Lutheranism, Calvinism and, and Zwinglianism. In the English-speaking world, we perhaps became most influenced by the developments that happened through Calvinism. Uh, and ironically enough, something that Calvin would never have been happy with himself. So to begin with, Calvinism was a movement that was born around quite a powerful sense of community discipline around material life. And actually, if people read some of the Calvin's institutes, he had a very clear set of ideas that actually spiritual life needs to shape and govern material life. Right? Uh, so that was quite clear in early Calvinism. What happened, though, and there have been a, a lot written about this, and it's still a highly debated subject about how this progression happened, but really over a process of about a couple of hundred years, we find that as uh, some of the earlier uh, things that bound together early Calvinism weakened and as the economic culture of Europe was changing so rapidly, and it was a period of very rapid, the 16th and 17th century was a period of great upheaval and change in Europe, and we also had the religious wars uh, of the 17th century, which had a huge impact. Through all of these sorts of things happening, these, this aspect of Calvinism got weakened and left behind. And a lot of the people who were involved in the movement were involved in the new growing economy, were making a name for themselves. Uh, and they had an idea that they were being called to callings in the world, and they found themselves very successful merchants. And so then they had a language where we're called to the world and what we find ourselves is increasingly wealthy and successful people so maybe this has actually got what God is calling us to us and so there develops this time that actually uh, how do we end and there's this concept of being the elect and there, if you, there's a, only a, a certain number destined to go to heaven how do you know if you have elect well perhaps it's because we're doing well in the world and perhaps that's a sign of our calling that so the, the new godly disciplines and this was the language of the time became the disciplines of work, thrift and accumulation and so, so the, these the economic disciplines actually became interpreted with a whole, these new uh, 
commercial practices were infused with a, a religious spirit. That's a simplistic explanation, but it happened, the thing is it happened over a period, it didn't happen clearly at any one point, it happened over generations even, even a hundred years. But by the beginning of the 17th, what, what is quite clear by beginning, 1700 particularly, uh, the church in the English-speaking world had lost its voice to speak a, about economic change. It no longer considered itself that... Uh, so it was permitted no longer uh, by society, a voice, to speak into economic change, and it considered itself it no longer had a, a voice to speak about what was happening. That was a new development within Christianity. Could you just um, um, go over moment two when Constantine was converted to the development of Sure. Okay, again, that's a big subject, and there's a whole lot involved... In a, and, you know, this is a highly contested point in Christian history. So for some people, the conversion of uh, the Emperor Constantine is Christianity's moment of great triumph when the Roman Empire is converted. For others, it's the moment of Christianity's great fall. It's almost akin to the fall of Genesis chapter 3. It's when everything was lost. I don't see either of those. Uh, see, I see it as more complex than that. Uh, so I think... Uh, bunch of things were lost when the church uh, married itself to power and began so by the end of the 4th century so Constantine converted around about 311 AD, by the end of that century uh, the church was already using violent coercion uh, in some of its own disputes so the Augustine against the Donatists uh, and was also sanctioning the Roman Empire's some of its Activities. Now, it wasn't that simple. So the church also started to influence what an em the concept of emperor uh, looked like in some positive ways. So the, the emperor Theodosius was made after slaughtering a whole bunch of his people in Thessalonica for, because he was angry at them, uh, was made by the bishop Am Ambrose to come in penitence to the church in sackcloth and ashes before, for a, a month before he could receive communion again. Now, this was a, that was a positive development, this idea that power must somehow be subject to a higher authority. So it was a complex... Some, so Chris, and in Christendom, we have this stream of something really positive happening of a culture asking, well, what does it mean to apply this gospel to all of culture? And actually, the medieval church did a lot of nitty-gritty work about thinking about economics, about how markets function and prices fluctuate, and what is it, how do we think about this Christianly? But on the other hand, we know that there is a lot of uh, fallenness in how the church, in its attachment to power and luxury, and that brought a lot of hypocrisy, and that had a massive undermining of, of faith as well. So it's a mixed... A mixed bag of things. And we live with the legacy of that still today. I think a lot of that mixed bag. Can you cite any, that period of time, any time the church attempted to win back? Oh, look, that's a great question. Uh, and that sort of allows me to add another caveat, is constantly throughout the whole story. So I've, I've actually told negative stories to try and help us explain some of the negative things. However, constantly through that time, there's movements of renewal and opposing movements. There's, it's never just a simple bad story. And that's one of the problems with the versions of Christian history that 
uh, a post-enlightenment secular culture has told us all, and increasingly Christians accept now, is that Christian history is full of bad news. It's not. We don't, haven't read the history right, and it's not being told. With, so there's been constant renewal, constant challenge. Or It's never lost. The gospel is never lost, it's, but it's having to fight continually. So at any point that we've described, there was counter-movement. So not long after the time of Constantine, we get the monastic movement, which was a, a, a profound movement of, of reclaiming vocation, really. Uh, and transformation, the, the early monastic movement. And that, over time, develops its own corruptions. And then we get the, the mendicant friars of uh, St Francis and St Dominic, which is a, then a reaction to the calcification of the monastic movement. And they transform things. And then their movements, over time, start to calcify. And then there's, we get things like the Protestant Reformation and, and the precursors to it. So there's a constant... If we, we look at history through the eyes that actually God exists and is real, and the Spirit of God does move in the world, we can see the Spirit of God continually moving and challenging things if we have eyes to see. And that remains and always will remain the case. Any other questions? Jonathan, uh, Martin Luther described the epistle of James as an epistle of straw. Yeah. <laughs> and also, is an epistle that has a lot to say about the rich and possessions yes. that we treat people. Sure, I think there has been. So I think particularly within Protestantism, we've struggled with some of this stuff more than the Catholic or the Orthodox world has because of uh, the ways, some of which, the, the ways in which we've read Paul, Paul's language, and NT, I don't know who he is uh, familiar with N.T. Wright's work. He's done a lot of helpful work of actually seeing that a lot of the theology by which we've extracted from Paul was really medieval theology that was trying to solve medieval questions, and they're not the questions of Paul. Um, so we've got often ended up with this dualism between uh, faith and works, uh, spirit and body, and we've often confused body and flesh. They're not the same concepts in the New Testament. Body is a positive concept. Flesh is a word that really describes the fallen condition that we find ourselves in. Uh, so we've often read when Paul says flesh, that he's talking about our bodies. He's not. He has a very positive view of life in the body. Um, and James, uh, it, there's, once you start to understand the meaning of words like faith and belief and that they're much bigger words than we've allowed to them, there's much less tension between James and Paul uh, that, than we've often assumed. And so Martin Luther, he said some pretty rash things and he was fighting his battles from his own times and some of the own, uh, you know, history is a series of reactions and counter-reactions. So things are over here and he reacts back like that and then there's a bounce back and, you know, if you just get one of those, what are those things called, those ball things? I need to get one because it really represents a lot of the movement of what we see in history, that back and forth, you know. Any other questions or are we ready for morning tea? Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you.